in our own. When I was a young man, latter years of college, I worked for a construction company. A lot of the men in the construction company lived about 300 miles away and worked during the week there on site. And about once a month, they would go home. The other weekends, they spent time in our region because they were away from family, accountability, all of those things, many fell into immoral behavior. And I think I was the only believer on the job site, so hence the nickname Preacher. And I would hear their escapades over the weekend, where they had gone and lived very immoral lives spent most of their paycheck drinking and going to prostitute houses. And I can remember this feeling of there's so much more than that. And I would share that with them and they say, ah, preacher, give it a rest. Until they had a problem. And then they would come and talk quietly and discreetly. But I remember the sadness that I felt in seeing that kind of lifestyle. And I know that many of you who work in office places in the area, work construction, work in various places, can give testimony to the same thing. We have a culture that tracks toward immorality, and it's difficult to share the gospel you know what I would hear from the men often when I would try to share the gospel? I like the life I have the way it is. I like women. I like going out to the bars. They could see nothing else, only the immediate gratification of their flesh. And as a result, they were very difficult to reach. Again, this is what Paul meets as he goes to Corinth, and I think we can glean some approaches in this passage and some perspectives on how we should share the gospel. And what we want to start with is the first verse there in the 18th chapter. We find Paul beginning to communicate the gospel in the challenging place of Corinth, and in order to understand the challenges that he faced, we have to understand the climate of the culture of Corinth. So look at this first verse and, say, and, and, and notice it says this. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Now when we hear Corinth, we think, okay, that's another one of those Greek cities that's way over there, and I don't have to really think about what it is or what it's like. But let me share this with you. 
In Paul's day, Corinth had a well-earned reputation. Because of its location, it was right in between two seas. It was on a peninsula. And it was only a three-mile stretch from one sea to the other. So you know what they did? They, they put logs for that three miles, and they would actually take ships and move them across the logs to go from one sea to the other rather than sail around the end of the peninsula. And there was Corinth right smack dab in the middle of all of that. Now, as you can imagine, as they're pushing ships on a three-mile trek, they're ready to go someplace and unwind. Corinth was where they went to unwind. So having these sailors who were far from home in a city that was geared toward giving them the type of entertainment that they were looking for, Corinth became known as a place of extreme immorality. Add to that that it was a place where the temple to Venus or Aphrodite was built. She is the goddess of love, kind of appropriate to uh, maybe mention her around Valentine's Day, but not really because it's not the kind of love that really lasts. But here is Venus, and guess what Venus had? Temples with 1,000 prostitutes to help the men worship Venus. So it was a place of extreme immorality. And in fact, we even see something of this mentioned in Paul's letter to the Corinthians because he writes to the believers, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. And then the text goes on to talk about how Jesus purchased them with his own blood. So even in the Christian community, immorality had taken hold. And the people of Corinth were doing things with their bodies that they ought not. Corinth was so bad that when someone lived a particularly immoral lifestyle, the insult hurled at them, quit living like a Corinthian. And that's found in documents outside the Bible all over the then known world. So Corinth was a place that was challenging to share the gospel. And you know, as we look at our own culture, we have a culture that's rapidly moving in that direction. When we look at industries that circulate around enslavement of children for sexual pleasure, when we look at the pornography industry, when we look at prostitution, when we look at many of the things in our culture that push people toward sexual entrapment, and notice I call it entrapment, not liberty, we can find that our own culture mirrors the culture of the Corinthians. So where Paul had a difficult time and place to share the gospel, we have the same issues today. Isn't it amazing how Satan very often takes the same old sins and temptations, repackages them, and uses them to harm people? The gospel is there to set people free. And this is what Paul understood. But we see something else about Paul. We find that Paul had some other cultural considerations 
in his evangelism strategy, and we pick that up in verses 2 through 4. Now, in verse 2, it says, There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, and had recently come to Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Now, here we're introduced to Priscilla and Aquila, and we're going to see more about them later, but let's just summarize by saying these were believers who were tent makers, and what we find is Paul threw in with them, and he became a tent maker or continued his trade as a tent maker with them. So the verse goes on to say Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker, as they were, he stayed and worked with them. So Paul was basically supporting himself to bring the gospel to the Corinthians. Now, why did he do that? Paul did this out of concern for the culture of the Corinthians. When we look at Corinth, not only was it immoral, but there were many teachers and philosophers who would come in and teach and give philosophies for a price. They were professional speakers. And they expected, every time they spoke, to receive money. And Paul did not want to affiliate himself with that in any way, shape, or form. He wanted them to understand that what he brought to them was something more than just another one of these speakers that speaks for hire. He was sharing the gospel, which is always free. And he wanted them to understand he's a different teacher with a different message. So that's what he did. And he shares this with the Corinthians. We can find this right in his second letter to the Corinthians when he says this. Now I'm ready to visit you for the third time. And I will not be a burden to you because what I want is not your possessions, but you. So again, addressing this mindset that, hey, a lot of these speakers are just in it for the money. And because... Paul wanted them to understand he was interested in them and not their possessions. He stayed as far away from it as he possibly could. Then he went on to say, after all, children should not have to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. So I will very gladly spend for you everything I have and expend myself as well. If I love you more, will you love me less? Paul was not in it for the money. He was there to share the gospel. You know, aren't there a lot of people out there that think that church and ministry is all about the money? How many of you have ever heard someone say that? <laughs> all of us, right? That's all they're interested in. Sticking their hand in your wallet. Not the case. Paul wanted to stay away from that. He was there to share the truth of the gospel. And look at the fourth verse. He works all week as a tent maker. Now understand, he didn't have a sewing machine or you know, any of the modern conveniences. Um, very often the tents were actually made out of leather. So if you can imagine sewing together leather all day, the tremendous work that that would be for your hands would be unbelievable. And then they also would sew wool together. So again, a heavy fabric, wrestling with that wool and, and, and sewing it together. Uh, hard, hard work. 
So he would work all week, but then look at what he did. Verse 4, every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Same language that we've seen throughout his ministry as he's going through Macedonia. He would go first to the synagogue and he would reason with them. Now the reasoning involved him going to Scripture and saying Jesus is the Christ, but he didn't just leave it there. He didn't just say, yeah, Jesus is the Christ, but he persuaded them. Now what that means is this. He was pleading with them to receive the gospel. He was pressing them for a decision. Just hearing about Jesus and knowing some things intellectually is good and important, but there has to come that place where we make a decision about it. Now, sometimes that's an official decision. Sometimes it's a conclusion that we come to, but a decision must be reached. And that's what we find here with Paul in the synagogue, pressing them for that decision. Again, in his second letter to the Corinthians, this approach is shared when he says, since we know what it is to fear the Lord, we try to persuade men. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. Look at this. We implore you, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. You sense the passion that Paul had. And do you sense the pleading on his part for a person to embrace the truth about Jesus Christ, that they might be reconciled to him. This was Paul's message. This is what he did after a hard work week, every Sabbath, in the synagogues, pleading. But then we come to the fifth verse. And we find that Paul continues to share the truth of who Jesus is and he just compassionately shares the gospel with the lost. Look at verse 5. While Paul initially in Corinth is there doing the tent making and sharing the gospel on the Sabbath, finally in verse 5 he gets some relief. It says when Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to teaching testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. Now, what we find when we go into some of Paul's other letters is he's acknowledging the gifts that people had given to him. Churches from other areas in Macedonia, in particular Philippi, had sent support for Paul so that while he's ministering in Corinth, he could focus on ministry itself. If you can imagine how harrowing and tiresome it would be to work a trade like what Paul worked and then carry on ministry, think of how much more he could do if he were freed up to focus on ministry itself, and that's what Paul did. In the fifth verse, it mentions that he devoted himself exclusively to preaching. You know what it means to devote yourself to something? If we look in the original language, our English word devoted 
translates a word that literally means to be pressed in spirit. That's a strong way of, of stating something, isn't it? He didn't have peace until he brought the gospel and shared it with other people. And we can see by Paul's testimony throughout his letters that he was indeed pressed in spirit, and not only for the Gentile, but also for the Jew. To me, one of the most powerful passages of Scripture about passion for the gospel is what Paul says in Romans 9 when he says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. And man, that's passion. He would be willing to be condemned if it meant that his brethren would find Christ. He meant every word of that, or it wouldn't be in the eternal word of God. Man, I have to tell you, when I looked at that and I thought about my own passion for evangelism, I was humbled. Do I passionately seek the salvation of others? Certainly not to that degree. I couldn't utter those words and mean it. Paul did. And we need to develop a passion for the lost. Isn't it easy for us to be so in our Christian community that we forget the lost world around us? Isn't it easy to rejoice in our salvation? And I don't mean to in any way diminish that. We should rejoice in our salvation. But it's too unpleasant to think about the lost. So I just won't think about it because it makes me uncomfortable. Paul's discomfort with the lost led him to action. He went out and he shared the gospel with the lost. And some of you may look at that and say, well, that was his job. He's a missionary. God has given us all that same job, that same mission, wherever we are. And within your sphere of influence, your family, your neighborhood, your, your co-workers, you can do the ministry of sharing the gospel. Opportunities like what Alan shared with us this morning, an opportunity to go to the least and the lost and to share the gospel. That's what we should be doing as a church body, as a church family. When we come to verse 6, we find that Paul decided to carry on his evangelism, but what happens is this. There were those who refused to listen, but there were also those who readily listened. So let's look at what Luke brings out. Verse 6, But when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive... He shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. Now, what is he saying in this text? First of all, he continues his ministry with the Jews. But what happened? 
the Jews rejected his ministry. You know, as you share the gospel, there will come a time where it becomes evident to you that the person that you have shared the gospel with on several occasions, it's probably best not to continue to share the gospel with them because sometimes it causes them to harden their hearts even more. It's a judgment call when that takes place. But I've seen many zealous, well-meaning Christians, particularly when they become a believer and their spouse hasn't, who will try to press the person that they care about into receiving the gospel, and you can't do it. You can't. And we have to come to that place to where we release them to God. And we leave them alone for a little bit and let the Holy Spirit be the Holy Spirit because he does a much better job than us. This is what Paul did with the Jewish synagogue there in Corinth. And look at how in dramatic fashion he said that he was stopping it. By the way, I'm not recommending that you shake the dust off your feet or shake out your clothes when you're ready to stop sharing the gospel with that person that God has laid on your heart, it's time to back off. But in the ancient Near Eastern culture, this was a dramatic thing. It was Paul doing this. And every... Jew in that synagogue knew exactly what he meant. He's done. He's not sharing with us anymore. And just in case they didn't get the symbolism of shaking the clothes out, I won't wrestle my mic as much this time. Just in case they didn't get that symbolism, you know what he did? He quoted from Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 33, there is a passage that Ezekiel shares with Israel. He had been sharing the truth of God with them Again and again and again. And so you know what he finally said? If you don't receive my message, it's on you, not on me. So live with that. And he walked away. Those are powerful words. They're words of warning. And every Jew in that synagogue would have known what Paul was talking about as he was quoting that prophet. Paul was saying, you are in the same boat that your forefathers were in when Ezekiel did that to them. So again, a very strong statement. But notice Paul didn't stop sharing the gospel altogether. Look at the last part of that sixth verse. He said, I am clear of my responsibility. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Where there is one here who will not listen, there is one here who will. And that's a lesson I think we need to take. As you share the gospel, you are going to get people who reject it. Fact of life. Don't become discouraged and say, well, then I give up. I tried evangelism once and it didn't work. I'm not cut out for it. I don't have the gift of evangelism right? We keep on. We share the gospel. It is the power of God to salvation, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we share it. We leave the results to God. And this is what Paul began to do. So then, 
what we find is Paul begins to count on God's guidance and what he was to do. And I think there's a lesson in this for us. We need to follow the leading of the Lord. And what that means is the conversion of some when we're obedient to God. We are going to have an influence. Now, let me clear something up. In evangelism, often we think of evangelism as somebody closing the deal. In other words, we share the gospel, and when somebody makes a decision to turn to Christ, successful evangelism, nothing could be further from the truth. Successful evangelism is accurately and biblically articulating the gospel and leaving the results to God. God closes the deal, not us. So any tricks, any pressure, any little maneuvers that you learn to try and get somebody to respond in a way that you can perceive and understand off the table. God is the one who gives the increase. We're just laborers in the field. Some plant, some cultivate, some water, some harvest, each equally important. So here is Paul. He's sharing the gospel. And we come to verse 7, and it says, Then Paul left the synagogue, and he had to go really far. He went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, and Crispus, the synagogue ruler, and his entire household believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptized. Now, I want you to look at what's taking place. Right next door to the synagogue, Titius Justus. He's either a Jew or a God-fearing Gentile. But whoever he is, he responds to the gospel. And he moves from being a worshiper of God to having that personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Look at the next one who's mentioned, Crispus. Now, when we look at Crispus, we find that Crispus is mentioned in Paul's letter to the Corinthians in the first chapter. But notice his job, his occupation. He was the synagogue ruler. See, not all in the synagogue rejected. Here is the ruler of the synagogue, and I want you to understand the important position that was in the synagogue. The moment that he placed his faith in Jesus Christ, he was no longer the synagogue ruler. He was fired. And he made that commitment to Jesus. Why? Because he believed the truth. And he was ready to forsake his livelihood in response to that gospel, knowing full well what it would mean. But notice not only him, but his entire household, and then the work of the gospel takes off, and there are many in Corinth who hear and believe and give public testimonies of faith, like what we saw this morning. They were baptized. What a beautiful statement of faith. But here's what we need to understand. As Paul was doing this, results bring about opposition. 
Satan hates a growing church. So he raised up opposition, and in verses 9 through 11, what we find is this. Even in the face of opposition, Paul gets a promise. A promise from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let me share this with you. There are those who will face persecution for sharing their faith. Not everyone gets a promise like what God is giving here to Paul for this time in Corinth. Paul himself and most of the apostles would face martyrs' deaths because they shared the gospel. But for a time, there is this promise. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, do not be afraid, keep on speaking, do not be silent, for I am with you. Now listen, that same promise is there for all of us as we share the gospel. Christ is always with us. But then he goes on to say, no one is going to attack or harm you because I have many people in this city. In other words, Paul, your ministry in Corinth will go on unfettered for a time. And those were words that I'm sure were meaningful to Paul. Think about what we've just read. Thrown out of Berea, thrown out of Thessalonica, tried to stone him to death in another place. Paul had faced persecution. But here, according to the truth of God, there was a reprieve. Luke goes on to say that Paul stayed a year and a half teaching them the Word of God. So for a year and a half window, Paul goes forth unfettered under the protection of the Lord to carry out his word. You see, God had more work for Paul to do. You know, as I looked at this, I think of how many times people stop a work when there's more work to do. Fear, the what-ifs start hounding us. And we wonder, should I continue or should I hang it up? And here is the Lord Jesus speaking to the heart of Paul, encouraging him to stay the course that he is with him. Let me tell you something. If the Lord didn't speak to my heart in this way, I would have quit ministry years ago. It can be tough. It can be challenging. But we listen to the Lord and we wait on the Lord. We get from Him when it's time to stay and when it's time to go. And here Jesus was saying clearly, hey, it's time to stay. So Paul responded to that and he continued the ministry and ministry was done for a year and a half. But then persecution returns. We come to the last part of this passage, verses 12 through 16. We find an instance of the synagogue trying to shut down the work of the Apostle Paul. Notice what happens. They bring charges and accusations against him. And You know, as a follower of Jesus Christ, you're going to get the same thing. 
Don't we already see it in many of the media portrayals of Christians when you watch television shows or movies where Christians are, are, are portrayed not in flattering terms whatsoever. We're made to look like hypocrites and nuts and trying to cast us in the worst possible light. Here is a Roman proconsul named Gallio. And in verse 12 it says, while well, Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him into the court. This man, they charged, is pursuing or persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Now, here they were talking about Roman law, once again, saying he's not telling people to worship Caesar, which is, again, hypocritical on their part because they didn't believe in worshiping Caesar either. But then it goes on in verse 14, just as Paul was about to speak... Gallio said to the Jews, if you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I'll not be the judge of such things. So he had them ejected from court. Now, can't you picture what's going on? Crispus is kicked out as the synagogue leader. A new leader is put in his place. We'll find out in verse 17 that his name is Sosthenes. And so they're trying to do what had worked before in stopping the gospel in other places. They stir people up. They come into the courtyard. They're speaking to Gallio. And they're saying to Gallio, hey, put a stop to this. They're troublemakers. Now, Gallio, on the other hand, is looking and saying, the only people I see causing trouble are you. You're the ones complaining. This poor man is just standing here, hasn't said a word yet. So you know what? Get out. I'm not going to listen to what you have to say. This is a squabble between you people. There's some sect of Judaism that's not getting along with you. So just take it outside. I'm not going to hear it. Now, why did this happen? Verse 9 or 10. I am with you and no one is going to attack or harm you because I have many people in this city. It was Jesus being true to his word. And here's the amazing thing. Gallio isn't a believer, isn't a follower of Christ, and yet God used him to continue the work of the gospel. You know, when you look at truths like this, you see the power of God to overcome any opposition. If it were up to Sosthenes and the other Jews in that synagogue, they would have stopped it in its tracks. But God is greater than the opponent. And he's true to his word and his promise. And so the gospel continued under the ministry of Paul. But then look at the last part of Luke's account. Contentious behavior can backfire. Verse 17 simply says this, Then they all turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue ruler, and beat him in front of the court. The Galileo showed no concern whatever. 
Now, who was the synagogue ruler earlier? Crispus. Who is the synagogue ruler now? Sosthenes. The implication of this passage is this. Gallio is looking and saying, I don't want to deal with it. Take it outside. And then people get angry, perhaps some anti-Semitism, who knows what's going on. But they go after the Jews for going after Paul. And what they had intended for Paul, they received themselves. See, God is in control. This was something that perhaps had an effect on Sosthenes. Because I want you to look at this passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul, called to be an apostle by Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and look at whose name appears. And our brother, Sosthenes. Now there were some who said that Crispus and Sosthenes are the same. But we find Crispus mentioned later in the book of 1 Corinthians by the name Crispus. And Sosthenes is mentioned differently. So many of the commentaries that I read believe that Sosthenes was the replacement for Crispus. And I agree with that. And somehow, after this happened, God perhaps even used this event to soften the heart of one who stood opposed to the gospel. We never know how God is going to work, do we? And it's because we never know and never can know how God is going to work that our responsibility is to be found faithful. So the question I've been asking myself all week as I prepared this message, as I thought about it, have I been faithful to sharing the gospel? Man, it's easy to look back and say, yeah, I had this person I shared the gospel with and this person I shared the gospel with years ago. But a question that those of us who have been in the faith a long time need to ask is, what have you done lately? How have we shared the gospel with others? Have we been intentional about praying for someone and putting feet to those prayers that we might share Christ? And that's an answer that you each have to answer for yourselves. But understand this. It's our calling. It's our responsibility. God gives us the resources. All we need is the obedience to follow. We'd like you to stand with me. We're going to dismiss in a word of prayer.